Welcome to the Mind Body Breakthroughs podcast, where we bring you amazing guests on the cutting edge of science, health, and business each week to share strategies that you can use to get the breakthrough you're looking for in your life. I'm your host, Dr. Nevada Gray. Joining me is my co-host, Chris Donahue. We're glad that you're joining us today. If you are enjoying our podcast, we invite you to hit the subscribe button and leave us a review. We love hearing from you. Today's episode is brought to you by Health Code. We all need vibrant health and sustained energy to live our lives to the fullest, especially during these busy times. You're likely eating enough calories, but they may not be the right calories to provide essential nutrition. That's called misnourishment, and it could be ruining our health. With Health Code Complete Meal, you'll get an optimized science-backed blend of protein, collagen, healthy fats, apple cider vinegar, probiotics, fiber, and vitamins and minerals without any added sugar, extra carbs, or anything artificial. It's not only nutritionally complete, it's also affordable and absolutely delicious. Stop the confusion of what to eat or not to eat. Formulated by a metabolic scientist and backed by nutritionists, Health Code Complete Meal is based on the latest research specifically to help you get as healthy as possible. With over 412 five-star reviews, this shake is one not to be missed. It's non-GMO, gluten-free, no soy, no added sugar, no artificial sweeteners, no artificial ingredients, and also tree nut-free. Save 10% on your first order with the code PaleoPharmacist. Link in the show notes. This shake, especially the vanilla flavor, is my go-to on busy days when I'm in the pharmacy. We hope you enjoy today's episode. And as always, please subscribe and leave us a review. We love hearing from you. The views expressed on the Mind Body Breakthroughs podcast are the opinions of the hosts and guests and are not to be taken as medical advice as the hosts and guests do not provide medical care. Information is provided for educational purposes only. You should consult your medical provider in relation to your own personal health and prior to making any changes in your diet and fitness. World-renowned pediatric gastroenterologist, research scientist, and entrepreneur Alessio Fasano directs the Center for Celiac Research and Treatment at Massachusetts General Hospital for Children. He is also Division Chief of Pediatric Gastroenterology and Nutrition and Director of the Mucosal Immunology and Biology Research Center at the Mass General Hospital for Children. A professor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School, Dr. Fasano is the author of Gluten Freedom, a book for general readers about celiac disease, gluten-related disorders, and the gluten-free diet. He is the co-author of the upcoming book, Gut Feelings, the Microbiome in Our Health from MIT Press. Thank you so much for listening today. If you are enjoying our podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review. We love hearing from you. Dr. Fasano, how are you today? Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Nevada, for having me on your podcast. We're so excited to have you here to share your research and to teach us all about the parallel universe that's the microbiome that's inside of all of us and the role that it plays in health. I loved your book, Gluten Freedom. It helped me so much in my personal journey. And 
before we start this fascinating adventure into the microbiome, can you share with our listeners a little bit about your background and how you became interested in autoimmune disease and the microbiome? So I am a pediatric gastroenterology by training. <clears throat> so from the very beginning, um, I've been involved and interested in uh, um, how we interact with the surrounding environments. But most of my early year science were really the interaction between microorganisms and us in the context of infectious diseases like cholera and shigella that were my original focus on, um, you know, my science. Over the years, I start to appreciate that, um, you know, the complexity of this ecosystem, particularly in the gut, it's much more than a single microorganism. And at that time, we didn't know about the microbiome. We knew that there was a variety of microorganisms that we have to deal with. And this was also the time that, by default, microorganisms were enemies. And therefore, you know, we have to deal with the presence of these enemies to develop tools to defend ourselves. Um, so over the years, actually, I end up to appreciate that, you know, the, the, the pathogens, so in other words, the enemies are the exception. The rules are the ones that want, want to live in peace with us. They want hospitality and got fruit, food from us. In exchange, they will do good things for us. And, you know, again, um, when finally we appreciate this in much deeper you know, details um, uh, that, you know, this ecosystem is what makes the microbiome for whatever, you know, uh, definition we have right now. I, I, I start to really appreciate very humbly how complex is this interaction and how things can go well when we live in a symbiotic relationship and how everything can go south on a specific genetic background if this relationship would become belligerent. Um, why did I get involved or interested in, in autoimmunity? I did not. I was actually trying to be disciplined to focus on studying uh, this interaction between microbes and us. And every single time that I was doing something, you know, the science brought me to autoimmunity. Then I said, uh-uh, wrong turn. You guys stay focused. And after three, four, five times, I decided that Mother Nature, God, whatever, serendipity, whatever you want to call it, decided that this was my path and let it, I let it go. And now, um, you know, my focus is mainly to understand this interplay between us as a host and the microbiome in the context of autoimmune diseases. Well, there are thousands and thousands of people that are so grateful that you went on this path of exploit exploration and research into this topic. Um, before we delve further into the microbiome, I wanted to set a foundation for our audience about some of the characters at play in this story. A few years back when I was researching celiac disease, I came upon a wonderful lecture that you gave on YouTube where you used the analogy of ingredients in a recipe. And when these ingredients are combined, this leads to a clinical outcome of autoimmune illness. There was the genetic predisposition environmental triggers, and the leaky gut. And I was wondering if you could give us an overview of how these factors work together to cause illness in our body and what these uh, players or ingredients in the recipe are doing. Well, first of all, the ingredients now are five and not three anymore. <laughs> so, um, and, and this is a you know, testimonial how science progresses and how you know, ignorance we are 
uh, in the process of trying to understand what's going on. And, and maybe that, you know, in the near future, we'll go from five to God knows how many more. Um, so we still have the necessity to be genetically predisposed to develop an autoimmune disease, of course. And we still need the exposure to something in the environment that put this in motion. Um, the two worlds in general are segregated by, you know, defenses, barriers that we have, particularly the gut barrier. And in order to interact, you know, they need to be jeopardized as, you know, uh, fences to keep this enemy at bay. And therefore, you need an increased gut permeability or at least permeability of, of mucosas in general, the, the lung, the, uh, even the blood-brain barrier and so on and so forth. To these three ingredients, now we have two added ones. One, of course, is the immune system. No matter what kind of, a, of, of, a, of an autoimmune disease you're talking about, uh, there is, by definition, the immune system that is involved that it has to cause the inflammation. And the fifth element, and it's the object of the discussion, is the microbiome that you know, has a great deal to decide when we switch from genetic predisposition to the clinical outcome. Um, and, and again, these are artificially, you know, presented as five distinct pillars, but they are highly, highly integrated. Uh, particularly the last three, gut permeability, immune system, and the microbiome, now we know that they influence each other big time. Um, so if you have an increased gut permeability, your immune system becomes more belligerent. And if your immune system causes a lot of inflammation, your gut leaks. Um, um, if you have a, an imbalanced microbiome, so we'll call technical dysbiosis, your gut permeability increases, and also your immune system works differently, and vice versa, an immune system that is hyperbelligerent will cause change in the microbiome. So there is a lot of interaction there, but ultimately, the most important interaction that really stems from you know, a, a long journey that we took a while ago to understand the basic of diseases, including autoimmune diseases, is this really crosstalk between microbes and our genes? Uh, meaning, you know, that, you know, the, the old paradigm, if I have the gene for celiac disease or Alzheimer or breast cancer, it's destiny that I develop this disease is gone. So in other words, if, if we have a genetic predisposition to disease, it's not a destiny that we develop this. If we do, we do not, depends how we play our genetic cards. And mainly it means how we, you know, our lifestyle. And, and the lifestyle, no matter if you're talking about the way that you eat, the use of antibiotics, the traveling, the infections, and so on and so forth, they all impinge on the microbiome. And because evolution is speaking, the microbiome speaks with us through changing the expression, our genes, it's the microbiome that really dictates if and when develops diseases. And, and if you allow me a parallel, imagine, uh, you know, um, the uh, human genome as a piano with 23,000 notes. That's the number of genes that we have. And let's say that, you know, to develop any autoimmune disease like, uh, I don't know, diabetes or MS, rheumatoid arthritis, celiac disease, uh, IBD, whatever that will be, you need to strike 300 notes in order to play the song out immunity. Uh, the piano player is the microbiome. So if you have a, a well-balanced, symbiotic, friendly microbiome, can touch 100 of these notes, and even if you're genetically disposed, you don't develop the disease. But you change the lifestyle, and the microbiome composition and function changes, 
and now you have a, an unbalanced microbiome you can touch all three on the nodes and just play the song autoimmunity. That's pretty much what we understand what's going on now. And that's truly empowering to a patient that may think, oh, I have a pre, um, you know, disposed condition. I have a genetic destiny because this may run in my family, um, that there are truly things that we can do to empower ourselves in our health. Um, so gut health is it's very popular in mainstream media. Everyone has an opinion what we should be eating to heal our guts and, and to improve our immunity and our microbiome. In starting this adventure, could you set the stage for us and explain the facts of what does our, how does our gut actually work, what is the microbiome, and how do our guts become leaky? What is the mechanism? I know you've done a ton of uh, research with zonulin, uh, which is a molecule that's elevated in um, some patients with uh, autoimmune disease. I was just wondering if you could set that foundation, and then we can get into uh, more about the microbiome and how it interacts with our genes. Sure. So for centuries, you know, people, until the recent past, people have been focusing on the study of the GI tract, the intestine, um, mainly for its function that has to do with digestion and absorption of food stuff. And that's what we thought that that was the, <coughs> what the intestine was doing for living, nothing else. This, of course, still remain one of the major tasks that the GI tract is empowered to um, attend to. Uh, however, it's, it's, it's really a, 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 an oversight of what's much more complicated function the gut's all about. Um, you know, um, if you imagine, you know, this tube from mouth till the anus, it, it, it's a very long tube. In an adult, we're talking about 17, 20 feet. But also, in terms of surface, because it's not smooth, but as you know, uh, hills and valleys, so uh, we have this you know protrusion called villi. The the this, the the interface with the environment is huge. If you stretch the gut of an adult on the floor, we'll cover a double tennis court. So it's it's a pretty large you know interface. But that speaks already volumes. What besides the digestion and absorption of the intestine does for living? is the largest way that we interface with the environment. Something that we see and we can appreciate is our skin. You know, if you have a, a wound and the skin is it's, it's, it's damaged and you have, you know, stuff from the environment, like say, you know, I don't know, dust or anything that goes in there or, or, or infections will start right away. And, and therefore you understand what it means if we don't interact with the environment properly. And what comes in our body through this, you know, um, you know, wounds and so on and so forth. Now multiply by 50 times and you will have the sense of an interfacing between the gut and the environment. It's the largest interface that we have with the environment. To make the story even more complicated compared to the skin, for example, the lung, is every day millions of stuff comes through. Chemicals, pollutants, food, nutrients, bacteria, viruses, parasites, millions of them, they come through. And the gut has to decide who is friend, who is foe, who can stay, who needs to go. Why some things need to be tolerated to, to be with us and some needs absolutely to get rid of. And therefore, this is really a tremendously complicated job that needs to be done. And this is done by 
the single layer of cells that cover the gut, uh, that um, uh, not only they have all the machinery to digest and absorb the food stuff, but they are the barriers, the ones that protect us against these enemies. And these cells are linked to each other, not by a wall, as we believed before, by gates, in general closed, but in implicit the concept of gates that they can be open or closed. And zonulin, the molecule that you were alluding to, is the key that decides if and when and for how long these gates need to be opened. Why we want the gates and not walls, since we are exposed to harsh environment? Because we need to have something coming through once in a while, but it's good for us. It's like to learn what is our surrounding and preparing our defense, our immune cells to face if and when an attack comes. So it's instrumental to have the capability and the plasticity to modulate gut permeability through zonulin and probably other mechanisms that decide if and when we want to bring stuff in. So the gut permeability is definitely something that we modulate. We do this in concert with this ecosystem of microbiome. So in other words, the microbiome that mature, you know, together with us, evolutionally speaking, and we can discuss this a little bit more in details if you want to, it really help us to make the decision-making process logical. Uh, if you, for example, in an animal, do you take all the uh, bacteria and parasite viruses out, so you make what we call a germ-free animal, that decision-making process and modulation permeability, it will definitely be negatively affected, as well as the maturation in the immune system that will require the presence of the microbiome to decide if, when, and how to unleash inflammation. And this goes back to the concept of the triangulation, gut permeability, immune system, and microbiome that influence each other. <clears throat> so this is a long way to answer your question. You know, the gut digests and absorbs food stuff for sure, but it's also fundamental to offer this barrier that decides if and when stuff needs to come in, inform uh, through specific antennas that we have out there, the immune system, if we're facing an enemy, and if so, to prepare for the war, or if they're friends, to stay put and not doing anything, so do not create inflammation. And, of course, this maximizes the capability to make use of food, to be uh, capable to uh, manage our surrounding, and fundamentally to control inflammation so that we stay healthy, if everything goes okay. One of these elements that goes wrong, your intestine leaks too much. The immune system becomes too belligerent. But most importantly, the microbiome goes off the balance. Then we start to put in motion those mechanisms that on a specific genetic background can lead to our immunity. And one of the questions that uh, many members of our audience have is in, relate, in relation to gluten. Uh, because gluten is one of those triggers that can open up the gates for our intestinal permeability and leave them open. And there's also questions of cross-reactor foods and other players in the diet that um, play a role in this and also influence the microbiome with, within our intestine to be able to keep this symbiotic balance. And my question um, is, have we evolved to be able to eat gluten and there are just a subset of unlucky individuals like me that become ill when we eat this? 
um, along with cross reactors. And I, we're just wondering what you feel the role of nutrition plays in keeping the harmony of the microbiome and also maintaining our intestinal permeability in that symbiotic relationship. I will answer this all last question, um, you know, um, last. So in other words, because this is an important question. Come to gluten. You know, gluten is a, it's one of the environmental you know, factors that we have to deal with. It's one of a kind, by the way, for several reasons. First of all, because it's the trigger of, of celiac disease. And there, as such, is the only environmental trigger that we know for sure linked to an autoimmune process. We don't know what is the trigger for diabetes, MS, rheumatoid arthritis, but definitely gluten is the trigger. The other peculiarity is that gluten, that by the way, is a mixture of protein, uh, proteins and not a single one. It's very peculiar because its composition is such that we don't have the capability to completely digest and, and, and in these single blocks that we call amino acids. You know, but proteins can be par, par, compared to sort of, of, of pearl necklace, okay? And in order to make use of these proteins, we have to break these necklaces in pieces and then peel these pearls that are the amino acids one at a time. We cannot do this with gluten. We can break you know, the necklace in pieces, but we can't just dismantle the single peptides. Some of these undigestible peptides are capable, now we understand why, to uh, instigate the release zone and therefore to make the intestine leakier. So the question being, does gluten cause increased permeability in everybody? Yes. Does this imply that everybody, you know, will have consequences of this increased permeability and therefore gluten is harmful for everybody? No. The answer is no, because now we know that, you know, um, as I told you, um, you know, we want to modulate, you know, this gut permeability for a short period of time and when needed. And gluten in the vast majority of people does just that. However, for people like you, they are genetically predisposed to a gluten-related disorder, in this case, celiac disease. Not only gluten does, like for everybody else, open <coughs> this space, but it does for much longer time. It just that this gets got stuck open in celiac people compared to healthy people where this is an on and off uh, process. And because of that, now you start to have this influx of major amount of gluten on the other side. And the second problem that when it comes to the other side, um, you know, for normal people, gluten can be dealt with and just we don't even know. But it, it, it helped, as I was saying before, to train the immune system to prepare for, you know, possible future wars, so to speak. Not for celiac, because now on this other side, there are other elements genetically, you know, determined that make the presence of gluten there very harmful and lead to a cascade of events that eventually deal with, um, you know, um, the damage of the intestine. Now, the question about nutri nutrition and, and, and the state of, of, um, of gut health. Well, you know, again, um, you know, the, the, if you study the composition of the microbiome in the first year of life, so in other words, when you're born, um, it seems completely chaotic. So in other words, at the beginning, there is a flow of bacteria, viruses and parasites coming in, then they leave, other come uh, on board, then baby food is introduced, there is another shift, and then everything quiets around the two years of age. It seems completely chaos. It is not. 
It is a revisitation of two million years of evolution in which what is happening there is to indeed find the perfect symbiotic relationship between us, genetically speaking, as hosts, and the, the microbiome that keeps up healthy. And this is being dictated by specific milestones that have been typical of evolution. You know, the way that you're born, if there are infections during, you know, the beginning, the end of the pregnancy, uh, you know, uh, the, the, if you have infection as a baby, the way that you're fed and so on and so forth. So evolution required that we're born by vaginal delivery, that we have breast milk, that we have exposure-specific environments, that if we got infected, we deal with that or we die because there were no antibiotics two million years ago. And eventually this at the end, who survived the entire ordeal, will have the perfect ideal relationship between host and the microbiome that keeps you healthy. Now, particularly in Western hemispheres, all this searching each other and this, you know, changes have been um, negatively influenced by external factors that were not part of evolution. C-section, that was not part of evolution. Bottle feeding, there was no part of evolution. Antibiotic treatment, if you have an infection, no part of evolution. And, and I can go on and on and on. However, these are all point situations. You're born once, you take antibiotic two, three times, you eat three, four times a day. So by far, the most influential factor that determines the composition and function of microbiome to find the ideal relationship with us as human beings is nutrition. And I believe that this quote-unquote epidemics of chronic inflammatory diseases, particularly autoimmune diseases, has been fueled in the Western Hemisphere because we dramatically changed the way that we eat. Has the research pointed to a specific way or a specific diet uh, of eating that can optimize our microbiome? What has your research and experience shown regarding that? So, yeah, I mean, actually, the common sense suggests already what would be the ideal diet. Because, again, you just need to revisit the history. When, when we were built as, as a species too many years ago, what our ancestors used to eat, they were hunters' daughters. So a lot of fruits, a lot of vegetables, because they don't run, they're there, you pick. Um, meat, rarely. You need to catch these animals. Lean meat, because these animals are escaping the predators, including the human predators. Fishing in there, tubers, nuts, olive oil. So what I'm describing is the Mediterranean diet, bottom line. So uh, the more you depart from, and it's not just what you eat, it's the proportion of what you eat. Because again, you eat a lot of fruits and vegetables, for the reason that I told you, very little meat. Um, so if you go to a classical Western, you know, lifestyle, including a nutrition lifestyle, that, that proportion, because of the agriculture and, and, and so you can predict what you eat because you don't have to work for it, and the domestication of animals has been completely reverted, you know. Um, even my generation, and, and that reveals how old I am, you know, Eating meat was an event that was happening once a, a week. If, and mainly because, you know, I come from a very humble, poor family, and that was the rule at that time. And, you know, tell me which family in the Western Hemisphere eat meats only once a week. Just that, uh, you know, changed completely the landscape. 
and you know we um there was a paper that was published you know no long ago two or three days ago in a very reputable journal school lancet that you know um point out that the most frequent cause of morbidity and mortality worldwide not just worldwide is nutrition and the common denominator why nutrition is fueling all this is the radical decrease of fibers in our diets fibers are key elements that we don't make use of because we cannot digest but are the staples for the microbiome because that's what they eat and the reduction of fibers really imbalanced tremendously the microbiome. The microbiome, if you allow me another comparison, can be compared to a farm with different animals. And we want them all so that this farm really can produce everything. So we have horses, we have cows, we have sheep, we have pigs, we have chicken, we have uh, you know uh, lambs, you have rabbits, and so on and so forth. These animals, they don't eat all the same thing. They need different food. And provided that you have a variety of food that they can feed them all, you have a balanced, you know, um, you know, uh, farm. Now you embrace a Western Hemisphere diet in which you don't have the capability to feed all the animals. So you don't feed chicken anymore. They're extinct. You don't produce eggs anymore. Or you don't have, you know, the hay for the, the cows and they will not thrive, so you don't have milk anymore. So we should not be surprised if we are in the midst of this you know, epidemic of, of chronic inflammatory diseases um, because you know, we eat very different than we used to. And that is so interesting, and this brings me to one of the most fascinating topics that I'm very excited to ask you about, and that's the gut-brain connection in regards to mental health and neurologic injuries. Um, many times we have gut feelings, intuition. And my question to you is, is it fair to say that the gut is truly the first brain? You know, as a gastroenterologist, I'm very biased on that. And I would say most definitely yes, because it has more neuro neuronal cells than the brain itself. However, you know, the fact that, you know, there is a communication between these two organs was very clear for a long, long time. Uh, as you mentioned, you know, talking about, you know, gut feelings, you know, that the brain can communicate with the gut. It was known to us forever. Um, so if you are, you know, stressed out or you, you see a strong emotion, it's not rare that you develop GI symptoms like cramps or even diarrhea because you've seen something really very disturbing to you. Um, what we were not aware, and it's something that now we start to really build up in terms of knowledge, is that the gut can communicate with the brain. So in other words, what happened in the GI tract may have actually impinged what happened in the brain, uh, to the point in which now, at least in animal models, but now we still start to see this in humans, behavior can be changed by changing the microbiome. So in other words, the microbiome can produce substances and or, because they are not mutually exclusive, activate immune system you know, responses that can spill into the brain and create a situation near inflammation that again, based on a genetic background, can translate from short memory loss to schizophrenia, to autism, to ADHD. Um, and, and again, I, I find this fascinating, absolutely fascinating 
because again, for me as a, a gastroenterologist, it makes a lot of sense if the intestine is the largest interface with the environment. If it's true, as we all agree, <clears throat> that in order to develop any of these conditions, but even neurodegeneration like Alzheimer, you need to be exposed to something in the environment that put this in motion. The port of entry of the intestine seems to be the most logical for me of all the possible exposure that we have that can put, uh, you know, the, the, the can put in, in motion this march from genetic predisposition to clinical outcome. And one of the most fascinating things, I was reading a paper uh, regarding where I believe they looked at dogs and they tracked plant lectins that actually traveled up the vagus nerve to the brain. And I was just wondering, in your research, um, if you can explain for our audience the mechanism of that, because many people were fascinated with, with that vagus nerve pathway and what that actually means. Well, again, these are there are several ways that the, 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 the intestine communicate with the gut, and they are not all mutually exclusive. One is the... the, the the neuronal pathway. So in other words, as you said, you know, the, the vagus uh, and the sympathetic and parasympathetic nerves are key elements, you know, that it's wired in the, 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 the intestine with the brain and vice versa. Uh, you know, and for example, the gut motility is wired through the vagus nerve that will slow down or accelerate the squeezing and relaxing, we call peristalsis. But they're also sort of highways in which substances from the gut can go to the brain. So that's one pathway. The other pathway is that, you know, <clears throat> the microbiome produces metabolites um, that eventually will get into the um, blood and, and through the blood-brain barrier into the brain that can change function. And last and not least, uh, you know, uh, antigen trafficking can activate immune cells that are programmed to leave the gut and go to the brain and create neuroinflammation there. And therefore, again, this will translate in a clinical outcome. They are not mutually exclusive pathway, actually, um, but they all, you know, are based on the same five pillars that I told you before. You got to be genetically predisposed to develop any of this problem in your brain. You need to be exposed to something in the environment. This substance needs to come somehow in our, you know, body through a, a an increased gut permeability. And the immune system has to do something in terms of creating neuroinflammation, and all depends on the microbiome composition function. I also wanted to follow up and ask you a question about the role of the microbiome in metabolic health, which is a topic that's gaining a lot of traction as obesity and diabetes epidemics have spiraled out of control. And I was just wondering what the role of the microbiome may play in insulin resistance, the development of insulin resistance, obesity, and also does the microbiome contribute to cravings? Uh, certain people crave food. It, are we craving that food because that's what our microbiome wants? So these are all very interesting questions for which we start to have some answer. We don't have a different answer because, again, we are at the very beginning of a, a, a new era of science that is all centered on the microbiome. Um, let me start by saying that the entire revolution that focused on the microbiome business started when we completed the human genome projects. The, the human genome project was a major effort in which we put a lot of money and, and, and time because at that time we were convinced that the paradigm was one gene, 
one product and will be one protein, one disease. So we got all the genes and we have the solution of all the problems of uh, the humankind. As I mentioned before, we are made of only 23,000 genes. So we're rather rudimentally uh, speaking, uh, uh, genetically speaking, quite rudimental. Um, so uh, definitely that, that, that did not help. And, and that fueled the, the, the human microbiome projects. And that's, you know, come with this concept that I was telling you, the piano and the piano player, that now with 23,000 nodes, you have an infinite possible, you know, um, combination that eventually leads to um, the, the clinical outcome. Uh, so the, the issue at this point is to uh, really try to understand, you know, how, you know, we are organized and what takes to be healthy. And many people, including myself, we made a mistake going from, we know about the um, genome of the human being, we find a solution, to now we know the microbiome, we find the solution. They are both wrong in my humble opinion. There is no such a thing of the normal microbiome. There is no such a thing. Why? It's like to say, what is the normal length of a hair? There is no such a thing. As I was mentioned before, the normal microbiome is so personalized because it's based on genetics and epigenetics, so which genes are put in motion, that even identical twins would not have the, they have the same genes, they eat the same thing and so on and so forth. They don't have an identical microbiome. It is all question of personalized. So if you want to find, you know, the normal things and you look at genome and microbiome, it's like to look at the pinch of Monet stroke by stroke. You need to move back. What is the, the results of this interplay between us genes and the microbiome? Metabolic pathways. Those are non-negotiable. No matter if you call Nevada or Alessio, we have to have the glucose level in a certain range in our blood. Otherwise, we will develop a metabolic problem. We have to have a blood pressure within a certain range. We have to have a certain amount of creatinine in our urine and ammonia in our blood. Those are all metabolic pathways. Those are all equal for everybody. So based on who you are genetically, you need to choose your microbiome that maintains you in that steady state metabolic balance. We all are born to have that. If we don't have that symbiotic relationship, mainly because the microbiome changes, you pay metabolic price and you can develop type 2 diabetes and, and obesity and so on and so forth. Then, as you mentioned, you know, there are even microorganisms that will make you craving, um, you know, to eat more. But even more important, they are microorganisms that scavenge more nutrients, even if the amount of, of calories that you ingest is the same, because of course we don't take 100% of the calories in. And this has been demonstrated very elegantly in uh, studies with identical twin girls, in which one was lean and the other one was you know, obese, and look at their microbiome, there were a difference in the microbiome, and if you took the microbiome of the obese girl and you put in the mouse, the mouse will become obese. While if you take the microbiome of the lean girl and you put in the mouse, the mouse will stay lean. So meaning the microbes are all capable to have the capability to say, 
bring everything in because I just need it. Now this is detrimental, but two million years ago, that could be the, the difference if you survive, if you die, because you know food was not readily available as right now. But it's fascinating and, and still work in progress. And with that, a lot of our listeners uh, were wondering, with the multiple players in the microbiome and where it is so individualized, uh, many people go on elimination diets, use probiotics, um, there's a variety of lifestyle changes, the nutrition, and then in combination with medication. And one of the um, interesting things I was reading in, I believe, a paper you published in January was regarding a zonulin inhibitor, which is uh, lorazotide acetate. And I was just wondering if you could speak to what tools we have currently in our toolbox um, to help patients with intestinal permeability problems um, in combination with uh, lifestyle and maybe separate some of the myths and facts uh, regarding probiotics because uh, that's a, a big question for our audience as well. Sure. And again, you know, this is, uh, the, the, again, the disclaimer that this is all a work in progress. And, you know, um, there, there are two big distinctions to be made here. One, the treatment of somebody that is already have the problem. And the other one is preventive that the problem will happen if somebody's genetically predisposed. Two different things, okay? So, um, you know, let's start with the latter. You know, you mentioned before, what kind of lifestyle I need to embrace if I have the predisposition of immunity, but I don't have yet. So let's say that I have a family history in which a lot of people, they have autoimmunity and so on and so forth. Well, again, um, I, I know as a fact that at some point we will have exactly that kind of information. We have a couple of grants, you know, aimed at an answer like this that will say, geez, you know, you are genetically predisposed. For example, we have a study, one on autism and the other one on celiac disease to develop either one of these conditions. And we follow you from birth and we see that months before, because that's what we've been seeing, they are shifting the microbiome that systematically predict who, starting from the starting point, the same starting point, would develop celiac disease and who does not. And in this case, we can eventually, you know, um, um, give some uh, directions in terms of lifestyle, use of probiotics, prebiotics, symbiotics, in other words, something that will eventually predict, pre prevent, you know, this derailment and bring this person back and say, no, 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 you took the wrong turn. You got to go straight so that you stay healthy. Uh, that's the holy grail, of course, of primary prevention. And then again, I'm, I'm convinced that we will get to the point in which somebody will go to the doctor, give the chip with the 23,000 genome, he's her own genome, and then bring the stool samples. And then by the end of the visit, the doctor said, listen, uh, you know, based on what I see here, you have, you know, uh, 10 times more chance to develop Alzheimer in 20 years if we don't do something here. And let's change, you know, the microbiome by doing uh, X, giving you specific probiotics, specific symbiotics, and so on and so forth, or change, you know, your diet so that, you know, we readjust your microbiome that you don't go this direction. When I say futuristic, it means that we don't have this data. So any use of probiotics here now, it's, a, it's an educated guess. It's good for us, but we don't know exactly what we're doing. Coming for somebody that already has the problem, that's a different story. It's a different story because, uh, and again, 
I, I know that a lot of people, particularly classical immunologists, will have an, an issue with what I'm going trying to say here. But I reason for common sense of what is my research and clinical experience. You know, autoimmune diseases don't give you any advantage, evolutionarily speaking. It's not like that you develop a thalassemia that is a, a blood disease that makes you more susceptible to anemia, but protect you against malaria. That's the reason why this gene has been maintained, because you have an edge, you have a, 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 an advantage to maintain the genes. You have no advantage to develop multiple sclerosis, no advantage to develop, you know, rheumatoid arthritis. And let's say that this, this is where the results of a genetic mutation that happened, I don't know, 100,000 years ago. What will be the, the evolution advantage, not only to maintain the genes, but having them to expand to the point in which now there are many more people with this disease than before. I don't think, in other words, contrary to what is the belief that when you turn on autoimmunity, you cannot turn it off because that's what is now the dogma. It's a one-way direction. You break tolerance, you develop diabetes, and that's the end of the story. You can't come back. I believe that is this continued trafficking of antigens that are creating the problem. And that's the reason why, if we will find a way to stop this, you know, antigen trafficking, um, you know, the, the immune system is doing its job, it's protecting us against the enemy. But if the enemy doesn't come through, then this will shut down and will not continue anymore. We have the proof of this. Both in celiac disease, you have the luxury, because you know what is the, the antigen that instigates the autoimmune process, to go on an elimination diet, take gluten out of your diet, there is no enemy around, and all the autoimmune process shuts down. You know, the immune system is, doesn't fight anymore, and even if you have an autoimmunity, it's, it's not there anymore because your symptoms are gone, because the damage in the intestines are gone, and so on and so forth. We have <clears throat> the proof, both in celiac disease in humans, but many animal studies, a mess, diabetes, and so on and so forth, that if you don't take the um, instigator out, but you stop the trafficking, for example, by blocking the zonulin pathway with this acetate, you obtain the same results. You take animals, they are predisposed to diabetes, you give the gluten, uh, you give the lorazodide, antigen trafficking is stopped. We don't know exactly what is coming through that instigator, and they don't develop diabetes. And we have seen this in multiple sclerosis. And we have seen in celiac disease in which we leave gluten in the diet of these people, but we give Lorazo diet and you obtain the same thing that you obtain a gluten-free diet. So provided that you stop the trafficking and or eliminate the offensive antigen, how the immune process can be stopped and potentially reversed. It's very probable the statement that I'm making, but I see in the future that as a possibility for autoimmune diseases as well. And that gives patients hope everywhere uh, to hear this, that struggle uh, with autoimmunity and allergies and, and illness, and they're constantly searching, how can I improve my health through diet and through different lifestyle strategies? One of the things I wanted to ask you is you have uh, an amazing book coming out called Gut Feelings, The Microbiome and Our Health. Um, our listeners and myself want to know, through the course of your research, what has surprised you the most about the microbiome? That something, a few things that you learned that you weren't expecting along the way. So this was a gigantic undertaking with Susie Fierty that is co-ordered this book um, that is coming out this coming March. 
And, and again, um, once again, because of my age, um, you know, uh, the, 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 I can tell you a great level of, of confidence that I had a huge lesson learned by studying the microbiome. I have a great deal of respect on the microbiome. Um, th this community, they work to really help each other. If uh, a microorganisms uh, acquire a, 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 a gene that is good for their own survival, they share. It's like that you have a good book and you say, you got to read this. Um, they don't think selfishness, but they think as the survival of the community. Uh, they really uh, act, you know, with the one only purpose, uh, you know, the uh, survival of the species. They reproduce every 20 minutes and they have the capability and the plasticity to adapt to change the environment very, very fast. But they do that simply because they want to really find the ideal environment for the whole community to survive. They, they don't have any intention to kill the, the hosts. That's an accident. That's a matter of fact, pathogens, they, don't, they are not very popular even among, you know, what we call commensals or symbiotic, you know, um, bacteria. I want to remind everybody that penicillin, there is a very you know, popular antibiotic, the first that we discover is nothing else than molecule that is produced by bacterium to kill a pathogen, another bacterium. So they know how to keep in peace. I don't want to become political, but you know, the events that we just witnessed a few days ago in, 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 a, in, a, in a microbial community would never happen because it would make no sense for the well-being of the community, make no sense. So if we will learn this lesson from microbes, um, I think that we will live a much better life. We're not the inequity in the world. We're not the disparities because, for example, microorganisms, you don't have rich microorganisms and poor microorganisms. They share everything. Um, so, and they don't have quote-unquote social tensions uh, as we do because there is no such a thing. Uh, so if I have to share what I was more mesmerized by this parallel civilization is that not only the capability to adapt, but the social, you know, justice of, of the microbial community will make sure that they will survive way beyond when we will be extinct of the species because they, they know how to really uh, work as a society for the, the good of, of the whole. And thank you so much uh, for your time today and for writing this wonderful book. Um, in closing, uh, our listeners want to know what is next for you in 2021 and what questions in science are you hoping to research and answer and where do you see medicine evolving over the next decade uh, regarding this? So, of course, I, like everybody else, <laughs> hope that by 2021, um, you know, we don't deal with the COVID pandemic anymore. And, and again, it seems to be redundant, uh, but, you know, um, we paid a, a huge price uh, in terms of life loss and, and everything related to COVID-19 that was all related, in my humble opinion, to the metabolic susceptibility of people that are were obese, hypertension, uh, they had hypertension, uh, they had, the, you know, the elderly. The, the, what is the common denominator there? 
these are people that unfortunately they have a, a weak immune system because the microbiome, you know, is not in well balance. Either because aging is part of the process of imbalanced microbiome, or because metabolically you are imbalanced and therefore more susceptible to this story. So if we pay a little bit more attention to the microbiome, we can be also more resilient for infectious diseases like this and go through this in, 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 in a different way that unfortunately we did this time. What I see in the future, what I hope from you know the, the outcome of all this research, again. Um, we had the wrong impression that if we're affected by the same disease, uh, let's say celiac disease or, or cancer, uh, we, we will benefit from the same solution. That's not true. Uh, those are final destinations. How you got there can be very different from one individual to another. And this is the concept of personalized medicine. That's the reason why any medication out there will not work for all the patients that intended for, but just for a subgroup. So... The microbiome studies will lead us to patient certification, therefore personalized medicine. In other words, to predict what is going to work best in terms of intervention, medical, lifestyle, nutrition for one individual versus another. And of course, the only that I was mentioning already is primary prevention. So in other words, the, you know, the fact that I'm genetically predisposed to develop a disease doesn't mean that I would develop it. I wish that we will have a better idea what we need to do in terms of lifestyle, particular nutrition lifestyle, to really play our genetic card the best possible with the overall intent to live longer and healthier life. Living longer is not enough. It has to be healthier and capable to stay, you know, independent and, 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 and aging with grace. So um, I, I believe that this is all feasible if we, with humble humility, will continue to learn from you know, this parallel civilization. Yes, and we thank you so much for your contribution to medicine and research and everything that you've done uh, for patients struggling with autoimmune illness, especially celiac uh, disease. So guys, um, make sure that you pre-order Gut Feelings, the Microbiome in Our Health. I'm gonna have links to all of Dr. Fasano's uh, research, uh, where you can get in touch with him and also order his wonderful books and learn uh, from everything that he's gleaned in science, uh, research, and practice. So thank you so much, Dr. Fasano. We appreciate your time today. Thank you, Nevada, for having me, and stay healthy, stay well. You too, stay safe. Thank you for listening to the Mind Body Breakthroughs podcast. We are now available on iHeart Podcasts and all of your favorite podcast listening platforms. As always, hit the subscribe button and leave us a review. We love hearing from you. If you're interested in being a guest on our podcast, send us an email. Link in the show notes.